It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. How do you feel about Martha's Vineyard? What I feel about Martha's Vineyard uh, is uh, a great place for a holiday, not such a good uh, place to wear, but it's very like uh, my own private part of the world, which is the west coast of Ireland. Uh, the attitudes are the same. They think everybody who's uh, not lived here for the last 300 years is a foreigner. Except, of course, you've got rich people here. There's a lot of skeletons in the cupboard here, you know. There's more incest going on in Martha's Vineyard than probably any state of the... Uh, in the United States. Oh, yes. Scandal and gossip. I hear it from the local dentist in particular. <laughs> he tells me who's living with whom. And, and, um, and it's always been what you'd call a sophisticated society for many years. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And this is the story of the making of the 1975 summer blockbuster movie, Jaws, the highest-grossing movie of its time. Jaws was the movie that really put Steven Spielberg on the movie-making map, the one that changed Hollywood's approach to summertime blockbusters forever, and the one that gave Martha's Vineyard a memory never to be forgotten when Hollywood came to visit. The story of how Jaws came to be is full of twists and turns and rife with personalities, triumphs, failures, and what looked like insurmountable problems at the time. There were weather problems, mechanical problems, all kinds of problems trying to film in salt water and on the ocean, story and script problems early on, casting problems, and 27-year-old director Spielberg was never sure of having a job when he woke up every day. That's just a quick look at how tough it was to make this film. By the time we're done here, you're going to feel like you were there, and I can guarantee you'll want to see Jaws again, but this time with a new appreciation for what it took to make it. 
and a bunch of movie bloopers and missed calls to look for, which we'll share at the end of our story. I'd like to ask you to define what it is that you think makes this movie so successful. Here's my opinion. Beyond it being a great story from Peter Benchley, I think it was the tension between the three main characters played by Richard Dreyfuss, Roy Scheider, and Robert Shaw that made this movie believable, as well as Spielberg's ability to create suspense, not forgetting the magic that his editor Verna Fields created. There is all kinds of white-knuckle suspense in Jaws. I heard Spielberg explain in one interview how for weeks they struggled with the mechanical shark, always getting frustrated over time delays caused by shark malfunctions, and with the fact that the shark, at least to them, looked fake. That worry exploded when a picture of the open side of the shark, whose name was Bruce, was released to the media, showing the entire mechanical setup feeling nearly the whole of the 25-foot-long shark on one side. The picture appeared in Time magazine, and the entire crew was convinced that once that picture was blasted across the media, the fear factor would be lost forever. While other worries replaced those in the days ahead, the idea started growing in Spielberg's mind that if the mechanical shark wasn't going to be there for every scene, maybe they should work more on creating suspense instead of relying on shark action to create terror. So suspense was created. He began to see things from a shark's point of view, people's legs kicking underwater, courtesy of a specially designed camera that gives us a view from above and below the waterline. Barrels being dragged away by an unseen harpoon monster, even the ticking of the ratchet on a pen fishing reel indicating that line was being slowly pulled out by something that had grabbed the bait. A boy on a raft, some friends in a sailboat, a girl headed for a skinny dip at night, and then, wham! You never see the shark in her scene, just a girl being tugged back and forth by what we were made to believe was a great white shark which has her lower body in its grip. She is pulled, fast, you can see her go first one way and then another, and then under. No shark visible. What we don't see is two teams of men pulling alternately on cables attached to a harness fixed around her midriff, and Spielberg himself underwater with her to make sure she doesn't drown, while at the same time pouring water into her mouth to make the scene look more realistic. In addition to suspense, it was the tension between the three heroes, Quint, Hooper, and Chief Brody and it was a real enough tension, much of it whipped up by experienced actor Robert Shaw, who played Quint, the gritty, shark-hunting captain of the Orca, and directed toward the young and less experienced Richard Dreyfus, who played the overconfident, even cocky at times, Woods Hole oceanographer Matt Hooper. Roy Scheider refereed between the two as acting police chief Brody, his concern being directed toward the beleaguered shore town of Amity, which was starting to lose its population to a killer great white shark. Brody's problem was a town mayor who didn't want to send tourists home on July 4th weekend, so he was reluctant to put out a shark warning. We'll talk more about the actors, the filming, and the things to look for the next time you see Jaws, but for now we've got to turn Peter Benchley's 1973 thriller Jaws into a movie. Pick a place to film it, then write it, and cast it. And that turned out to be a much bigger challenge than anyone dreamed of at the time. The story begins in 1973. Producers Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown were given a copy of the novel, and they were hooked. 
"'They knew it had the makings for a great movie, "'so they went to their checklist. "'Story? Good. "'Can we afford to make it? "'They believed. "'We can't afford not to make it. "'So yes. "'Will author Peter Bensley draw up a screenplay? "'He's agreed to do up three. "'So yes there. "'Should we grab it now before another studio grabs it? "'Absolutely yes.' So they bought the movie rights for $175,000 before the novel had been released to the public. Now they had the rights. The novel was flying off the shelves, and they had to make the movie while the book was still hot. They initiated the process by looking for a director. They first approached director John Sturgis, who declined, as did their second choice, Dick Richards. The name of a 26-year-old director, Steven Spielberg, came up. "'so they went through another checklist on him. "'Can he direct? Yes. "'Has he directed a feature-length film? "'Yes, the TV movie Duel and the Sugarland Express, "'a feature film with Goldie Hawn. "'I remember seeing Duel, "'which starred Gunsmoke's Dennis Weaver "'as a traveling salesman who is driving cross-country "'on a two-lane highway "'when an 18-wheeler decides to go full road rage on him. The movie has been described as nail-biting, intense, malicious, and it was, all thanks to Spielberg's uncanny ability to film it right, get the right scenes, and edit it in a way that builds suspense. When it came to Jaws, while most everyone from the producers downward believed it would end up as a B-monster movie and a write-off, hiring Spielberg was the best move they ever could have made. In 1971, the soon-to-be author of the novel Jaws, Peter Benchley, was doing freelance work to support his wife and children. He had an agent who kept him busy meeting publishers, and at every meeting he would pitch two ideas. One, a non-fiction book about pirates, and two, the concept of a man-eating shark terrorizing a seaside community. Benchley had read a news report of a fisherman catching a 4,550-pound great white shark off the coast of Long Island in 1964. That man's name, by the way, was Frank Mundus, and Mundus always felt that he was the model for Quint in Jaws, but never even got a nod or a thank you from Bensley or Hollywood. As far as I know, he did get one public nod from Roy Scheider, a.k.a. Chief Brody, in a televised interview, but that was about it. By the way, Bensley's Jaws stayed on the bestseller list for 44 weeks, it was a monster hit with readers. Mondas was a character, and I'll do my bit to immortalize him here for the next few minutes. I also mentioned him in an earlier podcast titled Shark, the Man-Eater of Matawan. Mondas did an interview years later with Nancy Atlas in which he says that he took author Bensley out fishing on his Cricket 2 for five days, gave him a huge insight on catching sharks, explained how it was done, showed him both commercial and sport fishing ways, and never got even a thanks for it after the book and the movie. Mondas, who ran his charter boat out of Montauk, New York, on Long Island's East End, holds the record for the largest great white taken commercially and sport fishing. His sport catch was a 3,427-pound, 17-foot-long great white, and soon after that catch, Mondas became the promoter of what he called monster fishing. Spielberg got his inspiration for the barrel scenes from Frank Mundus's book, Sport Fishing for Sharks. After hooking up, Mundus would harpoon the shark multiple times, 
each harpoon being attached to a floating barrel, all for the purpose of keeping the shark near the surface. Mondes had little fear of great whites. One story tells of his spotting a dead whale off Montauk, which was usually the perfect way to find big great white sharks, and this was no exception. Huge great whites were having a feeding frenzy on the whale. Mondes pulled the cricket too up to and alongside the whale, baited a large hook, gave the wheel to his mate, and walked out on the whale's back to watch the sharks taking huge bites from the opposite side of the whale. He picked the largest gaping maw and tossed the hook into its mouth, then retreated across the surface of the whale back to his boat and pulled out, setting the hook deep inside the shark. The fight was a long one, and it lasted five hours. At one point he called out to another boat to come and pick up his mate, who he sent back to town for supplies and pizza. In later life, Mundus had a change of heart and worked to conserve large sharks rather than cull them. His boat, the Cricket Two, has been restored and is currently docked in Newburn, North Carolina, where it's used as a rehabilitation fishing charter for U.S. veterans. Rest in peace, Frank Mundus, and thanks for your contribution to JAWS. Back to JAWS in the script. Peter Bensley submitted three screenplay drafts, each of which hewed more toward the events in the book. This included a number of subplots, including the mayor having mob ties and Brody's wife having an affair with Hooper. Spielberg looked the drafts over, but not one of them matched his vision of the project. Spielberg had no interest in the subplots. He wanted the main focus of the film to be on the shark and the men hunting it, period. Playwright Howard Sackler was brought in, and he agreed to an uncredited rewrite of the entire script. Spielberg read his version over. The rewrite addressed some of the issues that Spielberg had with Benchley's draft, but something still wasn't right. The overall feel of the script was dark, and the characters were largely unlikable, which is an issue when you're filming a movie about a killer shark and the audience is on the shark's side. So he turned to comedy writer and friend Carl Gottlieb, to lighten up the script. Gottlieb had been hired by Spielberg to play the character of Harry Meadows, the editor of the local newspaper. Gottlieb had done work for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, the Bob Newhart Show, All in the Family, and The Odd Couple. Carl told Stephen, You're asking me to lighten up a script? For a killer shark film? Nevertheless, he agreed. Gottlieb explained in the documentary The Making of the Movie Jaws that the script became a living thing, requiring changes daily, or really nightly, as he and others worked in Spielberg's rental cabin, writing and exchanging ideas with actors who were given the chance to expand their characters. Gottlieb, with respect to Spielberg's vision, got it, and the story became viable, adding humor as well as pathos. No one, unless it was Spielberg, believed that Jaws was going to be successful at first. In fact, it wasn't until the cabin scene, where Quint shared a survival story of the World War II torpedoing of the Indianapolis and how sharks killed most of the men who had been ordered to abandon ship, that Spielberg, Gottlieb, and co-writers knew they had a solid film. Robert Shaw, in the spirit of other famous British actors he'd worked with, like Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, and Richard Burton, got drunk in the first day's take of that cabin scene, apologized profusely the next morning and delivered a stunning performance that next day. He was a constant critic of Richard Dreyfus, 
who he considered to be inexperienced and way too overconfident. From what we civilians hear about actors uh, shot, it seems that it would go against their temperament uh, to have to sit around and, and wait all day for a 30-second sure, shot. And how do you psych yourself up for this kind of a, a well, regimen every day? scotch, vodka, <laughs> gin, whatever. Uh, no, we all have different methods. I, I uh, do tend to drink when totally bored. Um, Roy does exercises, Roy Scheider and sunbathes. Scheider does that, and Dreyfus talks. Just Dreyfus just talks interminably. That minds bigger than yours tension existed through their characters, with Chief Brody acting as the referee between the two. Until the scene where Quint crushes a 60-style beer can. Those cans were built much stronger in those days. With one hand, while Hooper watches. Then Hooper, straight-faced, crushes his plastic cup of tea in his hand while staring back steely-eyed at Quint. Nobody could hold back the laughter. The combination of Richard Dreyfus as oceanographer Matt Hooper, Roy Scheider as Chief Brody, Robert Shaw as the crusty boat captain Quint, was a combination of luck and genius. We delivered the bomb. Robert was a pretty Promethean character. Truly bigger than life. A man who intimidated me, who scared me, who exhilarated me, and I liked him and I hated him, and um, he had my number. You know, he could get me, and, and he always did. He really thought Dreyfus needed a slapping down. Young punk with no stage experience. He, he made me doubt that I could do things I knew I could do. Like, he, one day he said, you couldn't, you, couldn't fall, um, you couldn't dive off the top of the Orca. They say, can. No, you couldn't. Can do. <laughs> and I couldn't. Sure, I would say, look at you, Dreyfus. You eat and you drink and you're fat and you're sloppy. Your age, it's criminal. Why, you couldn't even do 10 good push-ups. He'd say, I can do 20. And Shaw would say, you can do 20 good push-ups? he said, okay, Roy, you're the referee. Tomorrow morning, we're going to see if Dreyfus can do 20. As soon as Shaw left, I said, Dreyfus, you know how many people can do 20 good push-ups? You are not one of them. Within nine days of the start of filming, those three roles had not yet been cast. Paul Newman and Robert Duvall were among those considered for the role of Brody. But Spielberg didn't want a big-name star in the film, so Newman wasn't approached, and Duvall would only come on board if he could play Quint. Charlton Heston spread the word that he would be interested in playing Brody, but even the mighty Moses didn't fit Spielberg's vision. Eventually, Spielberg would find his chief Brody and actor Roy Scheider. How did he find him? During an interview with Vanity Fair, Spielberg said, How I cast Roy Scheider is an interesting story. I was going through a whole series of actors, most of them unknown. There was an actor I liked from Serpico, it was not Al Pacino, as well as another one I'd seen in an off-Broadway play. But the studio, Zanuck and Brown, were pressuring me to get a name actor for this part. I was having trouble finding someone I liked. Then I remember I was going to a party one night, and Roy Scheider, whom I loved from French Connection, came and sat down next to me and said, You look awfully depressed. I told him, Oh no, I'm not depressed. 
I'm just having trouble casting my movie. He asked what the film was. I explained it was based on a novel called Jaws and told him the entire plot. At the end of it, Roy said, Wow, that's a great story. What about me? I looked at him and said, Yeah, what about you? You'd make a great Chief Brody. And the rest was history. There certainly was nothing happening on the casting front that was abnormal from any other big Hollywood production. So similar situations with the role of Brody begat the casting the roles of Quint and Matt Hooper. Spielberg then agreed with Zanuck and Brown's suggestion of Robert Shaw for the role of Quint. Shaw was an English actor, novelist, and playwright who first garnered attention for his performances in Shakespearean plays before launching a successful film career and had just wrapped up his role as the villain opposite Paul Newman in the highly successful movie The Sting. Shaw was reluctant to take the Jaws role since he did not like the book but decided to accept at the urging of both his wife, actress Mary Ewer, and his secretary. Shaw said the last time they were that enthusiastic was from Russia with Love, and they were right. Shaw based his performance on fellow cast member Craig Kingsbury, a local fisherman, farmer, and legendary eccentric who's playing fisherman Ben Gardner in the movie. Spielberg described Kingsbury as the purest version of who, in my mind, Quint was, and some of his off-screen utterances were incorporated into the script as lines of Gardner and Quint. Another source for some of Quint's dialogue and mannerisms especially in the third act at sea, was vineyard mechanic and boat owner Lynn Murphy. For the role of Hooper, Spielberg initially wanted John Voight, Timothy Bottoms, Jan Michael Vincent, Kevin Kline, Joel Gray, and Jeff Bridges were also considered for the part. Spielberg's friend George Lucas suggested Richard Dreyfuss, whom he had directed in American Graffiti. The actor initially passed, but changed his decision after he attended a pre-release screening of The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, which he had just completed. Disappointed in his performance and fearing that no one would hire him once Kravitz was released, he immediately called Spielberg and accepted the role in Jaws. Because the film the director envisioned was so dissimilar to Benchley's novel, Spielberg asked Dreyfus not to read it. As a result of the casting, Hooper was rewritten to better suit the actor as well as to be more representative of Spielberg, who came to view Dreyfus as his alter ego. The first actors cast were Lorraine Gary, the wife of President of Universal, Sidney Scheinberg, as Ellen Brody, and Murray Hamilton as the mayor of Amity Island. Stuntwoman-turned-actress Susan Backlany was cast as Chrissy, the first victim, as she knew how to swim and was willing to perform nude. Most minor roles were played by residents of Martha's Vineyard, where the film was shot. One example there was Deputy Hendricks, played by future television producer Jeffrey Kramer. Lee Fierro plays Mrs. Kintner, the mother of the shark's second victim, Alex Kintner, played by Jeffrey Voorhees. She's the one who gave Brody a slap in the face, accusing him of knowing that the beach was dangerous and not closing it in time to save her son. Filming the beach scenes with a cast of extras numbering about 400 was, as we'll soon describe, chaotic. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, back to our story. With the cast now in place, it was time to start filming. Call it naivete? or call it artistic vision, but Spielberg made the decision to film at Martha's Vineyard and on the ocean, a first for major features. Features set on the ocean were typically filmed on set in a large tank or in shallower waters, but never on the ocean itself. The reason why became very obvious very quickly. Tides moved everything around, and waves meant no tripods for cameras, so everything had to be handheld. Saltwater played hell with shark construction and cables, and what could turn to rust did so quickly. Bad weather. Sailboats had drifted into the frame, stopping production for hours, and soaking wet cameras were cause for many delays. Worst was mechanical shark delays. This is Richard Dreyfus talking about that situation on the very popular TV show, Rachel. One day you heard this. The shark is working. Repeat, the shark is working. Repeat, the shark is... The boat is sinking. The boat is sinking. And I was on that boat. And... Did you take a whole lot of swim and scuba lessons before you went out to do this? Not before, but after. <laughs> after you figured that. And so on the boat was Robert Shaw, Roy Scheider, myself, a 70-year-old sound man with a $50,000 Nagra tape recorder, and the stunt coordinator, who jumped to the wheel because our anchor had just come out of the floor of the ocean, and we were sinking in the Atlantic Ocean. And he was trying to power the boat into Chappaquiddick Island, and all the time screaming, this is the worst, this is the worst. (laughs) One time, the orca began to sink while the actors were on board. If Spielberg didn't think he was in over his head yet, he certainly had to be feeling it not long into filming. Principal photography began May 2, 1974, on the island of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, selected after consideration was given to eastern Long Island. The fishing village of Manemsha, Martha's Vineyard, was the primary location. Universal producer Brown explained later that the production needed a vacation area that was lower middle class enough so that an appearance of a shark would destroy the tourist business. Martha's Vineyard was also chosen because the surrounding ocean had a sandy bottom that never dropped below 35 feet, which allowed the mechanical sharks to operate while also beyond sight of land. As Spielberg wanted to film the aquatic sequences relatively close up to resemble what people see while swimming... Cinematographer Bill Butler devised new equipment to facilitate marine and underwater shooting, including a rig to keep the camera stable, regardless of tide, and a sealed submersible camera box. 
Spielberg asked the art department to avoid red in both scenery and wardrobe, so that the blood from the attacks would be the only red element, and thus cause a bigger shock. The beach scenes were filmed at Edgartown, South Beach. The attack scenes, where Chrissy meets her demise, were filmed at Cow Beach. By the third week of June, 1974, about the time when the film crew were asking themselves, What else can go wrong? It was time to film the July 4th beach scenes, especially the one where someone yells, Shark! and 400 people come running in from their happy positions out in the water. And note, the water is still cold around coastal Massachusetts in June. The one day, July 4th, would take a full week to film. Edith Blake writes in On Location, On Martha's Vineyard, the making of the movie Jaws. With the extras battened down for a non-stop fourth, State Beach on Edgartown Oak Bluffs Road was ready with all possible dispatch and excess manpower. The cabanas, bandstand, hot dog stand, and penny arcade created an instant public beach. Back into the sand went the arc lights, the track for the camera dolly and atmosphere. Atmosphere, islanders soon learned, was people in the background doing what normal people would be doing in the background while the actors were acting up front. The first day's shooting had a perfect day for the beach. There was a big birthday going on with a huge yellow cake involved, and one of the cameramen had to yell, No cake between takes! Special effects men had to coax the flames on the hot dog grill for the benefit of the camera. A Labrador retriever chased a stick into the water. Roy Scheider's face looked worried. Way up on the road and out of range of the cameras were the outhouses, four of them, for 400 people. But they didn't have to worry much because not too many people wanted to risk being out of a scene. The locals talked about the Hollywood people. The Hollywood people talked about the locals. Robert Shaw had headed to Canada for a short break. Spielberg floated around and between the people, in the water, looking for camera angles. The band played on. And, like Groundhog Day, the same thing went on for seven days of filming. The only thing that changed was the sky. On one of those days, it thundered and rained, and all 400 extras headed for the bandstand. As part of his deal, Jaws author Peter Benchley played the part of a newsman and did well, fully clothed in street clothes giving his report, looking out of place even though that's what any reporter would have looked like. But on the beach? I don't know. Mrs. Benchley and her two kids were there on a blanket as well. On one day, which happened to be a Sunday, the production crew, noticing the start of stiff winds around noon, told all the extras they could leave and come back tomorrow. They were all sitting on that cold beach in bathing suits and knew from the direction of the wind that it was a nor'easter. They were locals, after all. They knew what weather was coming. They knew there would be no filming for three days or more. By the following Wednesday... The third day of the storm, it was still bad. Production posted a notice on their door. The weather for the future looks just as bad, and therefore extras need no longer check in each night to see if they're on call. It was a great summer for real estate rentals in Edgartown, and in fact, all over Martha's Vineyard. Tourists came to the Kelly House, hoping to see the stars, and sometimes they got lucky. Many often got lucky, according to Richard Dreyfus in one of his many interviews. The entire shoot was controlled by unions. If a truck needed to be driven, it was a union driver. If meals needed to be served, it was union food servers. The Teamsters lived all summer at the Kelly House, where they had 50 rooms. It has been said that prior to assigning the rooms, 
"'they came in and measured "'to make sure no one got a larger room. "'They earned a thousand a week, "'so they were all happy. "'They were all from Boston "'and spoke often using four-letter words. "'On the last day of June, "'the brave four hundred "'waded out into the cold water "'and stood trying to hide their shivers "'and blue goose-pippled skin. "'Amidst howls and moans, "'they slowly, on command, "'sank to their knees in the waist-deep water, "'thus pretending they were up to their necks in water. "'Starting places, please,' "'came the voice over a bullhorn. "'Okay, drop to your knees. "'Now, there's a shark in the water. "'Background action.' and the four hundred started in a life-and-death swim and then run toward the shore. Some were trampled. One ten-year-old boy had been instructed to flick the back strap of the girl's bathing suit which was just in front of him, which would trigger her suit top to fall off. Of course, he was told to continue to run toward the shore and ignore her. But nature being what it is, when her suit fell off, he stood stock-still staring at her top, his eyes as big as pie plates. Cut! Retake! said the director, and they all took their in-the-water positions again, sort of like in the movie Airplane when the pilot announced, assume crash positions, and they all froze in awkward mid-air stances. The positions had to be exactly the same so different takes could be spliced together. After a long, cold, sandy, wet day at the beach, the extras who survived it were tempted with a shot of brandy to stay for one more shot, but many were shivering so hard they couldn't even hold the drink. By Monday, many extras had left. On that day, Roy Scheider, acting as Chief Brody, walked the beach, his mission being to lean over a casualty and ask, Are you all right? The person lying on the beach answered honestly, Yes, thank you, Roy. Cut! Retake! And the band played on for yet another day. They only knew one song, but they played well. And I'll give you two early beach bloopers. One when you see Chief Brody and his wife relaxing on the beach, his wristwatch appears and disappears. And two, in the beach panic scene, you'll see a number of people running onto the beach who are completely dry, despite having just run out of the water. Initially, the film's producers wanted to train a great white shark, but quickly realized this was not possible. So three full-size, pneumatically-powered prop sharks, which the film crew nicknamed Bruce, after Spielberg's lawyer, Bruce Raymer, were made for the production. The sharks consisted of a sea sled shark, which was a full-body prop with its belly missing that was towed with a 300-foot line, and two platform sharks, one that moved from camera left to right with its hidden left side exposing an array of pneumatic hoses, and an opposite model with its right flank uncovered. The sharks were designed by art director and production designer Joe Alvis during the third quarter of 1973. Between November 1973 and April 1974, the sharks were fabricated at Raleigh Harper's Motion Picture and Equipment Rental in Sun Valley, California. Their construction involved a team of as many as 40 effects technicians, supervised by mechanical effects supervisor Bob Maddy, best known for creating the giant squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. After the sharks were completed, they were trucked to the shooting location. In early July, the platform used to tow the two side-view sharks capsized as it was being lowered to the ocean floor, forcing a team of divers to retrieve it. The model required 14 operators to control all of the moving parts. For Quint's boat, the Orca, Alvis and his team constructed two identical 42-foot models for the film. The second boat, dubbed Orca 2, 
had no motor and was designed to sink on command. That's why, if you watch closely, you'll see the nameplate on one of the orcas appear to be very rusty, while the other appears very clean and new. It's two different models. Jaws was the first major motion picture to be shot on the ocean, resulting in a troubled shoot, as we know, and went far over budget. David Brown said that the budget was $4 million and the picture wound up costing $9 million. The effects outlays alone grew to $3 million due to the problems with the mechanical sharks. Disgruntled crew members gave the film the nickname Flaws. Spielberg attributed many problems to his perfectionism and his inexperience. The former was epitomized by his insistence on shooting at sea with a life-size shark. I could have shot the movie in the tank or even in a protected lake somewhere, but it would not have looked the same, he said. As for his lack of experience, I was naive about the ocean, basically. I was pretty naive about Mother Nature, and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can conquer the elements was foolhardy. But I was too young to know I was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank. Gottlieb said that there was nothing to do except make the movie, so everyone kept overworking, and while as a writer he did not have to attend the ocean set every day, once the crewmen returned they arrived, ravaged and sunburnt, windblown and covered with salt water. That comment was from Jaws, The Oral History, by Mark Salisbury and Ian Nathan. Shooting at sea led to many delays. Unwanted sailboats drifted into the frame, cameras got soaked, and the orca once began to sink with the actors on board. The prop sharks frequently malfunctioned, owing to a series of problems including bad weather, pneumatic hoses taking on salt water, frames fracturing due to water resistance, corroding skin, and electrolysis caused by the salt water. From the first water test onward, the non-absorbent neoprene foam that made up the shark's skin soaked up liquid, causing the sharks to balloon, and the sea sled model frequently got entangled among forests of seaweed. Spielberg later calculated that during the 12-hour daily work schedule, on average, only four hours were actually spent filming. Gottlieb was nearly decapitated by the boat's propellers, and Dreyfus was almost imprisoned in the steel cage. The actors were frequently seasick. Robert Shaw also fled to Canada whenever he could due to tax problems, engaged in binge drinking, and as mentioned, developed, or at the very least, acted a grudge against Dreyfus, who is now getting rave reviews for his performance in Duddy Kravitz. People who just went online, this has become a way of life. I may even burst into tears when they finally, you know, <laughs> fire the gun. After all this. Yeah, and you know, it has been physically very unpleasant and even quite dangerous some of the time. The seas have been high, the boat sank three times, you know. My, uh, my death, you know, going into the shark's jaws, very unpleasant thing, the goddamn thing weighs about, uh, I don't know how many tons, several tons, and the jaws absolutely come down on me with the hydraulic pressure, you know. When you do it 14 or 15 times in this kind of weather, in the cold, slide right into it, and then the teeth come and bite you out of it. Not very nice. Editor Verna Fields rarely had material to work with during principal photography, as according to Spielberg, we would shoot five scenes in a good day, three in an average day, and none in a bad day. But the delays proved beneficial in some regards. The script was refined during production, and the unreliable mechanical sharks forced Spielberg to shoot many scenes so that the shark was only hinted at, as we said previously. 
For example, for much of the shark hunt, its location is indicated by the floating yellow barrels. The opening had the shark devouring Chrissy, but it was rewritten so that it would be shot with backlinny being dragged and yanked by cables to simulate an attack. Spielberg also included multiple shots of just the dorsal fin. This forced restraint is widely thought to have added to the film's suspense. As Spielberg put it years later, the film went from a Japanese Saturday matinee horror flick to more of a Hitchcock, the less you see, the more you get thriller. In another interview, he similarly declared, The shark not working was a godsend. It made me become more like Alfred Hitchcock than like Ray Harryhausen. The acting became crucial for making audiences believe in such a big shark. The more fake the shark looked in the water, the more my anxiety told me to heighten the naturalism of the performances. Footage of real sharks was shot by Ron and Valerie Taylor in the waters off Dangerous Reef in South Australia, with a very short actor in a miniature shark cage to create the illusion that the sharks were enormous. During the Taylor's shoot, a great white attacked the boat and cage. The footage of the cage attack was so stunning that Spielberg was eager to incorporate it in the film. No one had been in the cage at the time, and the script, following the novel, originally had the shark killing Hooper in it. The storyline was consequently altered to have Hooper escape from the cage, which allowed the footage to be used. As a production executive, Bill Gilmore put it, The shark down in Australia rewrote the script and saved Drivers' character. Although principal photography was scheduled to take 55 days, it did not wrap until October 6, 1974, after 159 days. Spielberg, reflecting on the protracted shoot, stated, I thought my career as a filmmaker was over. I heard rumors that I would never work again because no one had ever taken a film 100 days over schedule. Spielberg himself was not present for the shooting of the final scene in which the shark explodes as he believed that the crew were planning to throw him in the water when the scene was done. It has since become a tradition for Spielberg to be absent when the final scene of one of his films is being shot. Afterward, underwater scenes were shot at the Metro-Golden-Meyer water tank in Culver City, with stuntmen Dick Warlock and Frank James Sparks as stand-ins for Dreyfus in the scene where the shark attacks the cage, as well as near Santa Catalina Island, California. Fields, who had completed a rough cut of the first two-thirds of the film, up until the shark hunt, finished the editing and reworked some of the material. According to Zanuck, she actually came in and reconstructed some scenes that Stephen had constructed for comedy and made them terrifying, and some scenes he shot to be terrifying and made them comedy scenes. The boat used for the orca was brought to Los Angeles so the sound effects team could record sounds for both the ship and the underwater scenes. Two scenes were altered following test screenings as the audience's screams had covered up Scheider's bigger boat one-liner and Brody's reaction after the shark jumps behind him was extended, and the volume of the line was raised. Spielberg also decided that he was greedy for one more scream, and reshot the scene in which Hooper discovers Ben Gardner's body, using 3000 of his own money after Universal refused to pay for the reshoot. The underwater scene was shot in fields of swimming pool in Encino, California, using a life-cast latex model of Craig Kingsbury's head attached to a fake body, which was placed in the wrecked boat's hull. To simulate the murky waters of Martha's Vineyard, powdered milk was poured into the pool, which was then covered with a tarpaulin. 
As most of you know, John Williams composed the film's score, which earned him an Academy Award and was later ranked the sixth greatest film score by the American Film Institute. The main shark theme, a simple, alternating pattern of two notes, variously identified as E and F, or F and F sharp, became a classic piece of suspense music, synonymous with approaching danger. Williams described the theme as grinding away at you, just as a shark would do, instinctual, relentless, unstoppable. The piece was performed by tuba player Tommy Johnson. When asked by Johnson why the melody was written in such a high register and not played by the more appropriate French horn, Williams responded that he wanted it to sound a little more threatening. When Williams first demonstrated his idea to Spielberg, playing just the two notes on a piano, Spielberg was said to have laughed, thinking that was a joke. As Williams saw similarities between Jaws and pirate movies, at other points of the score he evoked pirate music, which he called primal, but fun and entertaining. Spielberg later said that without Williams' score, the film would have been only half as successful, and according to Williams, it jump-started his career. He had previously scored Spielberg's debut feature, The Sugarland Express, and went on to collaborate with the director on almost all of his films after Jaws. One good review for Jaws reads, The acting, while a secondary element of the film, certainly doesn't hurt. Spielberg builds the characters beyond the usual stereotypes so often found in Hollywood films. Roy Scheider is strong as the transplanted city cop trying to overcome his fear of the water. Richard Dreyfuss is surprisingly and effectively low-key as the scientific egghead. And Robert Shaw, as Captain Ahab, is most outstanding. Bordering on parody, Shaw plays Quint as an old grumpy loner, slightly deranged yet slightly heroic. None of them had the box office draw of a Robert Redford or a Paul Newman, but they all worked well as a team, delivering breakthrough performances in some of the cinema's most unforgettable moments. Spielberg overcame many obstacles and delivered one of the greatest primal scare thrillers ever to come out of Hollywood, while taking in four Academy Award nominations and winning three, Best Sound, Best Original Score, and Best Film Editing. Jaws was chosen by the prestigious American Film Institute as one of the 100 greatest American films of all time and forever changed the way entire generations thought about swimming in the ocean. Jaws was more than a blockbuster. It remains a cultural phenomenon and one which sparked a worldwide fascination with sharks. Jaws to date has made $470,700,000 worldwide, a whopping 97.45% over its $12 million budget. It set new precedents for the industry, multi-theater release at the same time. The summer blockbuster. Summer was largely seen as off-season up to that point in 1975. And increased budgets for advertising and marketing of films. It redefined the public's perception of the shark worldwide and launched Spielberg to the top tier of Hollywood directors. Here's the irony. The things that threatened to destroy the film during filming ended up being the very things that keep Jaws at or near the top of any critic's pick of best Hollywood films. The ocean shooting that lends a stark realism to the hunt. The last-minute scripts buoyed by actor input that personalizes the dialogue for them. The laughable score that heightened the tension, further heightened again by feuds and frustration off-screen. Most importantly, the persistent issues with the sharks leading to Spielberg shifting course to a more Hitchcockian approach with the shark-petrifying audiences with the terror of the unseen. Final note, there was no way in hell Spielberg was signing on for Jaws 2. There were sequels, and most critics, including this one, 
believe they're not worth watching, except for the great work done by special effects. Now it's time for those Jaws movie bloopers and missed calls that I promised, courtesy of IMDb Bloopers. When the shark first approaches Hooper in the cage, the above-water shot shows the barrels being towed through the water at great speed. However, underwater, the shark passes Hooper at less than half the speed of the barrels, and the shark has no barrel lines attached. And this one. There are five yellow barrels on the orca. After they get the third barrel in the shark, Quint walks past the barrels with his harpoon gun, and there are still three barrels left. And this one. The machete that Quint thrusts into the starboard side of the orca disappears and reappears continually throughout the remainder of the movie. That makes sense since they use two boats for Orca. Same thing goes for the cleats that the shark pulls up the boat. They disappear and reappear. When Hooper is measuring the bite radius of the tiger shark, he puts his measuring tape away more than once. When Jaws attacks Hooper's cage, there is live footage of a real great white with a rope hanging from its mouth. This shark's mouth is clearly much smaller than Jaws' mouth when it attacks the boat moments later. Here's an interesting one. When Hooper and Quint are comparing their scars, Hooper shows him a large scar on his left forearm. Later on, climbing down the ladder, when the boat engine has died and Hooper has his sleeves pulled up, the scar is gone. When Chief Brody throws the air tank into the shark's mouth, he throws it in bottom first, meaning the valve part is sticking out of the shark's mouth. Later, when the shark is charging him, Chief Brody is shooting at the tank. It's reversed, and now the bottom of the tank is sticking out of the shark's mouth. Another one on that machete. When Quint throws down his machete into the side of the boat, the ocean water in the background is as smooth as glass, but in all other shots during that scene, the water's very choppy. And here's one for the pond shot. When the shark enters the pond and knocks the guy, Ted Grossman, off the boat, he doesn't have any shoes on. When we see his leg sink to the bottom, it has a shoe on it. The action in Jaws is supposed to take place during the 4th of July weekend in New England, At that time of year, the temperature in New England, during the day, usually ranges from the mid-70s to the mid-90s. Yet, with very few exceptions, the cast, including the extras, are wearing long pants, long-sleeved shirts, heavy jackets, wool hats, etc. They appear to be dressed for autumn weather and not summer weather. This being because they've already done a lot of shots and they've gone out in the water, which is still very cold up there. So when they come back, they're putting on sweatpants and jackets. And this one's interesting. When Brody attempts to make a mayday call on the radio, a liquor bottle is next to the radio. Then Quint comes in to smash the radio, and there's a wine bottle there instead of the liquor bottle. And here's one. Before Alex Kintner is attacked, Sean Brody is shown sitting on the beach singing. After Alex is attacked and people are running out of the water, Sean can be seen standing on the beach, and in one shot, Chief Brody can be seen grabbing him. But a couple of seconds later... Sean is shown sitting on the beach in the same spot he was before, as if he had not moved. And here's one. When Brody is doing the chum line for the second time, you see that his cigarette has been lit for quite a while. It's burned down. Yet when he has just seen Jaws for the first time and tells Quint, you're going to need a bigger boat, he's clearly smoking a freshly lit, full-length cigarette. And by the way, that line spoken by Roy Scheider, we're going to need a bigger boat, was totally unscripted, ad-libbed, and stands today as one of American Film Institute's most popular unscripted lines, and one that lifted Roy Scheider into movie legend. And this one. Just before Quint shoots the first barrel into the shark, Hooper has the camera around his neck. 
He hurries around the starboard side of the boat and a second later goes into the cabin without the camera around his neck. And this one. In one of the first scenes on the boat, Quint is not wearing socks. But in the following scene, when Quint tells Brody to ask him first before untying a rope, Quint now has his socks. And here's one for Chief Brody. During most of his time on the Orca, Chief Brody is wearing a black sweatshirt with rolled up long sleeves. When preparing the shark cage to go into the water, he's suddenly wearing a blue sweatshirt with short sleeves. When Brody, Quint, and Hooper are building the anti-shark cage, in one shot Brody has a shirt on, in the next he has it off, and in the next he has it on again. And if you watch the sea in a lot of the scenes, the sea frequently goes from choppy to calm and the skies from sunny to hazy as we cut back and forth between the characters on the orca. And here's one from the beach. When there's a false alarm in the water, a lady screams when she sees the fin. Behind her, there are a girl and a boy on a blow-up raft. In the next shot, a man is seen in a similar position, and behind him, there is now an extra girl on the raft. And here are some factual errors. Great white sharks cannot move backwards once their gills are underwater, as seen towards the end of the film. And here's one to watch for. As Brody walks through Amity, the trees are bare, despite its being July. And here's one for you scuba divers. When Brody is left on the boat by himself, the 3,000 PSI scuba tank floats beside him. A full scuba tank would sink. Only an empty tank would float, because it does not include the weight of the compressed air inside. For the tank to explode, however, it would have to be full and pressurized. And here are some facts that are incorrectly regarded as goofs. Some think that when Quint first encounters the shark, he incorrectly refers to the great white shark as an orca, saying that he's got to get a good shot at that orca's head. In fact, as he referred to the great white when first approached by Hooper and Brody inside his boathouse, he's calling it a porker, slang term for big and white but with his accent, it sounds similar to Orca. During the barrel scene, the shark pulls three barrels underwater. Mythbusters discovered that the shark would have had to exert 1,200 pounds of pressure, which it would be incapable of doing. However, this is a thriller horror movie, and shark strength is intentionally exaggerated to make it appear invincible. And the most important detail of all, for you shark lovers, real great white sharks do not behave in the manner depicted in this film. In fact, Unprovoked shark attacks are very rare, with only a handful of them being fatal, and two out of three people survive a great white shark attack. However, this is a thriller horror movie, and many things are intentionally exaggerated to fit the genre. I could go on and say the great white sharks make great house pets, but I don't think we'll go there. A little more on the beach panic. During that beach panic, attendants dressed in white with black ascots can be seen at the water's edge trying to guide the swimmers to safety. One of them, a young man with slick black hair, breaks character and is just standing there with his hands at his sides, laughing. Thanks for joining us for Jaws, behind the scenes of the 1975 summer blockbuster. We hope you enjoyed it. We always appreciate reviews and we'd like to share some recent reviews with you. The first one, Tin Pan Alley, 5 stars, 1001 Heroes. John, you brought back to me memories of songs I've known over the decades and did not know the background of them. You eloquently made the music alive. Thank you. That one from Don Thun, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great podcast, 1001 Heroes, five stars. Well-researched, well-presented, informative, and enjoyable. I really do like this podcast. The host does a great job of making this both educational and very easy to listen to. 
That one from Redbird77, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, very good. 1001 Heroes, five stars. I love this show, great history. That one from 1911 Coyote, Apple Podcast U.S. And I have a few recent mixed bag reviews for some of my other podcasts that I wanted to share with you as well. The first, really enjoyed Black Beauty. 1001 Greatest Love and Family Stories, five stars. I just discovered 1001 Greatest Love and Family Stories. Thoroughly enjoyed another classic in Black Beauty that I hadn't read or heard. Lots of other interesting stories there. I'm looking forward to listening to soon. John, keep up the great offerings. Thanks for all you do. That one from Kajsa to Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, great podcast, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I really enjoy this podcast. The subjects are interesting, and the host speaks well with a nice pace. I've listened to all the episodes at 1001 Stories for the Road and find myself repeating them. Down from Jazz Sharp, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, five stars, great series. 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I love the whole 1001 Podcast Network. The whole network makes long days spent on the farm in a tractor more enjoyable. I download a whole lot of episodes from the various 1001 podcasts at home, and then I can listen to them out in the field without using expensive cellular data. Thanks, John, for all your hard work, and please keep up the great work. Best regards from Saskatchewan, Canada. And this one, great stories. Again, 1001 Greatest Love and Family Stories. Five stars. I just finished Black Beauty, and I'm now enjoying Swiss Family Robinson. I've not yet found a story on your network that I didn't thoroughly enjoy. The narration is excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sending these reviews. They are greatly, greatly appreciated. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look at Jaws, the movie. And now when you see the movie, you'll have a lot more to look for. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And we'll be back next week Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon. app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon.